The following program is brought to you by Caltech. All right, well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Caltech Space Challenge. This is the sixth lecture in our lecture series sponsored by Lockheed Martin. This afternoon, we have Dr. Ron Turner, who is a fellow of the uh, Analytic Services Incorporated, and he is an internationally re recognized expert in radiation risk management for astronauts. And today, he'll be sharing us with us some of that expertise. Uh, so without further ado, Dr. Ron Turner. Thank you. I'm, um, I'm truly delighted to have the opportunity to um, talk with you this afternoon. Um, I wish I could be there in, in person, but, well, things don't always work out the way you want. But at least I am, you know, still able to give this talk, so that's, that's, a, that's a plus. Um, Analytic Services is a not-for-profit company um, that uh, provides support to the, um, to the U.S. government on a number of, number of things. And my area of specialty for the last 20 years uh, has been in the area of space weather and risk management strategies. And so I will share some of that with you today. Uh, but before I um, get too far into the actual charts, I want to um, thank the organizers for inviting me to give this talk. I uh, want to um, recognize uh, Dr. Frank Cusinata, NASA JSC, who uh, provided the starting point for many of these slides. He's the NASA uh, expert on uh, radiation effects on humans. And so if you ever really need to turn to somebody that knows any of the details or uh, the details of the radiation effects on humans, that's the go-to person inside NASA. I also want to acknowledge the uh, support I got from uh, a student this summer, Calki Sexaria, uh, who put together some of the slides that I'm going to be using this afternoon and, and uh, on his during his research this summer. However, uh, in spite of those acknowledgments, these are my slides, and if there's any errors, they're my own and they are certain not NASA's official position, at least they're not, they, they don't represent NASA's official position. So what am I going to talk about? Um, I'll start uh, with the significance of radiation, uh, the health risks to astronauts. I'm going to only briefly touch on the effects of, uh, on electronics and materials, but I want to make sure that I do at least uh, acknowledge those effects. Um, it would take an entire brief and to go into detail on those effects, and I think for your purposes, what you really need to know is the um, health risks and how to, how to manage the health risks. I'll give you a very short overview on radiation environment, including the two primary components that you're going to have to worry about, the galactic cosmic rays and uh, periodic solar particle events. And then I'll spend a very few minutes just, you know, introducing you to shielding strategy. Uh, the idea is to give you enough of a the introduction to the topic that you can then go online and start um, uh, web searching on some of the key points that are in the in the briefing, and I think from that point you can you can finish uh, your your project. So it's enough to get you started. I hope uh, the next slide uh, shows that um, radiation has been considered one of the major issues for exploration. Uh, basically for as long as NASA has considered sending humans into deep space. And there's two major points that you need to keep in mind as you start designing your own um, mission, as you make progress in designing your own mission. One is that the um, exposure to radiation uh, imposes a severe limitation on the duration of your mission. And we'll get into what that means in the course of this brief. And the second is that uh, adequately protecting the astronauts against radiation is a significant challenge and 
uh, is going to, if done properly, which I hope it will be done, um, uh, imposes a significant challenge in the design. So uh, there, uh, NASA takes the health risks in, uh, from radiation very seriously, um, and they don't they don't uh, work backwards. They don't say, here's our mission now, what radiation environment can we survive? They take it sufficiently seriously. They go to outside independent organizations, largely the National Council on Radiation Protection, to advise them. So the National NCRP has uh, conducted some studies on deep space missions, and, and in fact, any radiation exposure to astronauts on any NASA mission makes some recommendations, and NASA takes those recommendations tries to convert those recommendations uh, into uh, actionable methods to enhance crew safety. And what we see in the course of the briefing are some of what are called uh, permissible exposure limits. I'll go into a little more detail on those as we go along. But the two goals, the, the primary goals of the crew safety are to make sure that there are no lasting effects on the astronauts that are beyond acceptable uh, risks, and to make sure that the exposure that the astronauts get during the course of a mission are not so severe that they impact the probability of mission success from acute radiation, short-term radiation. So they have separate sets of rules for the longer-term exposure to radiation and the shorter-term exposure to radiation. Most of the emphasis up to now has been on those two points, the cancer risk in the life of the astronaut and the uh, radiation sickness from short effects. But they're beginning to learn, and this is really stuff that's only been coming to the fore over the last couple of years, that over a mission in deep space that's anywhere from one to three years could have impacts that affect the astronaut's central nervous system or um, other soft tissue like the heart. So those limits may become uh, more constraining as we learn more about those effects. Now, talk a little bit about that. As you design your mission, you're going to want to do a total strategy for radiation radiation risk mitigation, and that's going to include, you know, what do you do in terms of physical shielding, how do you monitor the environment, and what kind of uh, operational countermeasures do you include to limit the risks. Well, all the permissible exposure limits are designed as outside bounds not to be exceeded. But in addition, NASA um, follows what's called the ALARA principle, which is uh, familiar to anyone that's from that uh, works in uh, the nuclear industry for uh, and and has workers that are exposed to radiation and alara is as low as reasonably achievable so you, so you have a set of limits <clears throat> and then you work to stay below those limits so overall there's from a health standpoint there are four categories of risks of concern to NASA, and they're on this first bullet. The first is the cancer, um, probability of the astronaut eventually dying prematurely from cancer that was induced by the radiation exposure. So that's something that can, 
it can happen long after the astronaut returns safely from the mission, but not so long after that it doesn't shorten his or her life. And so we want to make sure that the radiation risks <clears throat> are small enough that it doesn't, doesn't have too much of a long-term effects. And there's the chronic and degenerative tissue risks, cataracts, heart disease, immune systems. We're just now really getting quantitative understanding of what those risks are and being able to include those in the permissible exposure limit. There's acute radiation, acute radiation risks. It's really unlikely that you'll have a solar storm that's so severe that your astronauts are going to die from exposure to that storm. Most likely, you're going to be able to get the astronauts into enough shelter that uh, you can mitigate not just the risk of death, but other acute effects like vomiting or fatigue and weakness or uh, immune system suppression. Most likely, you'll be able to design a mission concept that keeps your astronaut safe from acute radiation risks. What we're not as sure about is the fourth bullet, and that is over the course of a really long mission, are we going to be able to protect the astronauts from a gradual buildup in um, or a gradual degradation of your central nervous system, uh, which, of course, you know, it's not a good thing. If you're an astronaut and you're on your way home and you have to push the red button or the green button and you don't remember which is which, so <laughs> we want to make sure that they don't get into a situation where that's a problem. And just now getting, again, to the point where we can quantify those effects. Up to now, it's been believed that if you design your limits so that the risk of cancer is no greater than what is acceptable, then, that, then you will have, therefore, also limited the risk of severe CNS because it, would, it was believed that that would take an even greater exposure than... Uh, what you need for the cancer. It's still believed that that's the case, but they're just now getting good quantitative. They're just beginning to get quantitative measures on that. So the assumption will be that the cancer effects are still the dominant in terms of controlling your radiation exposure. What makes all this complicated is the exposure that the astronauts get in deep space is different, qualitatively different from the exposure that we have data on here on Earth. Uh, here on Earth, we've got um, data on atomic bomb survivors, a lot of data um, following uh, life histories of the um, people who were exposed to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, we've got lots of <clears throat> data on uh, uh, other um, occupational, occupationally exposed uh, cohorts, like people who are work in um, mines, um, but and we also have a lot of data from medical exposure to radiation, even high doses of radiation. But generally, the stuff that we have good data on is from a type of radiation that's qualitatively different than the radiation that the astronauts are going to be exposed to in deep space. It's what's called low-energy uh, low uh, transfer radiation, LET, low-LET radiation. The particles or, that go through the body from 
most of the exposure that we're used to are minimally ionizing. The particles that the astronauts are going to be exposed to in deep space are very highly ionizing particles. And the difference is substantial on what that means to the, to the health risks. And the problem is trying to quantify the difference. And that's why there's an extensive ground-based program in trying to understand from a biological standpoint you know, what those risks are by exposing cells, tissues, and other, other targets uh, to the same type of radiation that they'll be getting in space, but from things like um, high energy accelerators. So all the risks and all the limits that I'm going to be talking about in the rest of this talk are, of course, subject to change with new knowledge and subject to changes in the regulatory recommendations. The limits that I'm going to give you today, or I'm going to show you today, are really limits that have been developed for astronauts on the kind of mission that we've had to date after the Apollo program, where we left the safety of the magnetosphere. So it's low Earth orbit. It's, it's, the, mission, it's the limits that are uh, appropriate for low Earth orbit missions, where the astronauts are not taking major risks that have large societal benefits. It may be that the levels of risk that I'm going to be showing you today need to be relaxed when the overall risk that the astronauts are exposed to are higher or when the overall benefit to society is substantially greater um, and therefore worth a higher risk. I'm going to be talking to you about the risks that NASA has accepted to date. It's reasonable to believe that the risks that they have accepted to date are going to continue to be the risks with minor modification for exploration missions, especially an asteroid-type mission that you might expect only last on the order of a year. So probably these are, so one would use as a working hypothesis that these are the correct limits. Show you a little bit more about the philosophy because understanding the philosophy is important here. Um, you would begin with a line, I've got my marker here, you'd begin with a line of acceptable risk in terms of the probability of risk of exposure induced death. So you've got some level of exposure that you, if you're under that line, you're probably, your mission is probably okay. The astronaut uh, risk is acceptable. Before you ever get before you ever get to that line, you decide there's some other level of exposure that if they're ever at that level of exposure, then you begin to take restrictive measures to try not to get to a higher level. Um, if you just used a point measurement, you just go to standard radiation. Uh, transport curves and calculate the exposure, then you would be getting numbers on this blue line. You'd be getting values on this blue line that I'm tracing right now. To ensure the safety of the astronauts, though, given the large level of uncertainty, the, uh, you build in a confidence interval so that you actually want to be below uh, a you want to stay even lower in exposure. So what are those exposure limits? They're designed to limit both the acute and the long-term risks, as I've, as I've said. The, 
the one that gets the most play, the, the uh, exposure limit that gets the most play these days, is the cancer effects, risk of exposure-induced death. And what it has been determined is that NASA's limit will be that the astronaut does not exceed 3% risk of excess exposure-induced death for the rest of his or her life at the 95% confidence interval after folding in all the uncertainties and all the components that go into calculating that excess risk. That turns out to be dependent on the uh, gender of the astronaut, male and female, and the age of the astronaut at exposure. When you're younger, you have a longer lifetime ahead of you. Um, the amount of uh, radiation that you can ex be exposed to is less because there's a longer time when you could develop the cancers. So older astronauts are, are permitted greater exposures, less likely anything the radiation does is going to turn around and give answer before they end of natural life. Um, males have slightly higher exposure thresholds than females, and that's dominated by the risk of breast cancer to females, but it's not just that risk. There's other, they, they look at all the cancers, and they normalize the risks across all the cancers that the astronaut could get, and they do an accumulative lifetime average across all the, all the uh, potential cancers. It turns out that uh, males can have a greater exposure than females at the 3% um, risk of exposure-induced death at the 95% confidence interval. Um, now, those numbers, the specific numbers that are on this chart, are calculated for exposure over the course of a one-year mission. And, and if you really wanted to know what that number was for a two-year mission, you'd have to redo the calculations because there's a lot that goes into uh, the, the lifetime risk calculations, but they're still good guideline numbers. But those aren't the only um, permissible exposure limits. They also, NASA has permissible exposure limits to the blood-forming organ, the FO. That's um, largely the risk um, of that, that drives acute effects such as nausea. You don't want your astronaut throwing up in a spacesuit. That would certainly ruin his or her day. Um, there's exposure limits for skin. If the astronaut's skin gets so damaged that they can't uh, wear a uh, spacesuit repeatedly, then they can no longer be effective in their mission. So skin limits. There's eye, central nervous system, and heart effects. And the central nervous system and the heart effects are um, subject to change as more knowledge is, is accrued over the next several years. Now, where this sometimes gets the most press is a subsequent calculation called the safe days in space. So this is the thing, this is, this is the most controversial part of the briefing. It's also the hardest to follow, but at the end of the day, you don't really need to know the detailed numbers. I'm going to walk you through it so you can see just where we stand today. Let's assume that you have a spacecraft with 20 grams per centimeter squared aluminum shielding. And by the way, the units grams per centimeter squared is used instead of a thickness of the aluminum. You can go from the density of the aluminum to find out what the physical thickness of that uh, shield might be. Because 
if you express the thickness in terms of grams per centimeter squared, then most materials are fairly similar. So 20 grams per centimeter squared of aluminum is close to 20 grams per centimeter squared of water, which is close to 20 grams per centimeter squared of uh, a polyethylene. Close to is only to zeroth order, however, and we'll, and we'll find that there are benefits of low Z materials over high Z materials, but that's for later, it's just this term grams per centimeter squared is probably new to many of you. Um, safe days in space, just as the 3% risk of excess exposure induced death uh, is gender and age dependent, is the safe days are gender and age dependent. In 2005, NASA had ran the, the exercise to find out how long an astronaut stay uh, in space and, and be below the permissible exposure limits. And the numbers are on this chart here in terms of days. I guess I don't say days on here. Oh yeah, it does say days in space, right? Up there. These are days, but those numbers um, were updated in 2010 based on the U.S. population average. Um, there was additional cohort information on exposure, and the numbers went down. The number of safe days in space went down. But that assumed, both of these tables assumed that you were using population average for a, to represent an astronaut. An astronaut is actually typically much healthier than the population average. <laughs> and one way to represent that is to look at um, people who have never smoked. Never smoked as a quantitative, and it says less than 100 cigarettes in their lifetime, something, something similar to that. But the astronauts are, but that population, the cohort of never smokers, oops, excuse me, um, is a better representation of healthy astronauts. And so the numbers go back up again on the number of days in space, number of safe days in space. But even that's not the whole story. Um, they've actually, um, some studies that I could never ever attempt to describe because I don't have a clue how they're done. But I am assured that if you look even closer at the cohorts of the populations that you're looking at, um, the numbers were overly conservative. The numbers have been overly conservative. And if additional research further subdividing the cohorts that are being looked at is accepted in peer-reviewed science, and that's why they're in parentheses now, because that assessment is still underway, then the number of safe days may go up again. So what all of this means, because you can't really go to this chart and say that's the number and we have to stay below that number for our mission, it's still evolving. It depends on the risk limits that you've accepted and any number of things. But what is clear, none of these numbers get close to a year. And something has to be done if you're really planning a year mission with, uh, with your asteroid mission. Um, just looking briefly at just one of those categories, the 45-year-old male, you know, what we're, where we were at in 2005 decreased in 2010 
got a little bit better after we talked about never smokers, got better still after we talked about um, not just never smokers, but a true uh, parallel cohort to the astronauts. What we're really finding is that if we can decrease the uncertainty and hopefully get to that 360-day level, in order to get there, we're probably the, the most effective path is to continue to reduce the uncertainty because it's that 95% confidence window around the point measurement that's keeping these numbers as small as they are. So there is a path forward, and that is on the biological side, we've got to reduce the uncertainties to really understand what that risk is. That's a whirlwind tour of permissible exposure limits. But hopefully it's enough of an introduction that you can now go and more carefully read some of the stuff that's on the web, perhaps build up your understanding of those effects. Um, what, I'm even, what I'm not even going to try to do is uh, give you a similar background on the impact on materials and electronics other than to show this chart to say you have to be aware that the radiation environment has an effect also on the silicon and on the silicon that is a part of your mission electronics. Uh, where this matters is largely those components that are outside the, on the outside of your ship. So it wouldn't be a good plan to design a mission that has a whole lot of sensitive electronics that are all living on the outside of the safety of your ship. Now there's some of that stuff you can't avoid. It has to be on the outside. Um, but what you need in that case is to make sure that you've used rad-hard materials, that you've used radiation um, techniques that, that include redundancy in your systems and error checking so that you recognize that a, that, uh, that, uh, a radiation-induced uh, error has occurred and you have a, a, an auto autonomous way or at least a, a safe way you know, to recover from errors like that. So there is going to be, in addition to human effects, there's going to be effects on your system from the radiation environment. And what is that radiation environment? There's three, there, there's, let me back up here, I want to do it the way it was built, the way it builds. with all four of them. <laughs> all right. Um, galactic cosmic rays, uh, which I'm going to speak a little bit more to, okay, are one component. Solar particle events, a second component. The third component that you don't think about right away are the, is the secondary radiation that's produced by the very shielding that you're using to protect yourself from the GCR and the solar particle events. Secondary, minimizing the secondary radiation is why you want to go to material that's low atomic number. Water, well actually if you looked, hydrogen would be the absolute best shielding material. Anything rich in hydrogen is good. Anything rich in low Z materials is good. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of structural material that's also low Z. You usually have to go to the aluminum or some other metal get the structural strength that your spacecraft needs. But as much as possible, you want to include low Z material to minimize the secondary radiation. 
we're not going to be talking about trapped radiation. That is the radiation that's um, trapped around the Earth in the magnetosphere, because usually that's not going to be a concern for a mission architecture. However, the only footnote to that is if you happen to design a mission that um, uses electric propulsion to slowly spiral from Earth orbit away from the Earth and then depart off to the asteroid. And if for some reason you keep your astronauts in the spacecraft that's spiraling away from Earth orbit and it spends literally weeks, if not months, in that spiral, then you would have to worry about the trapped radiation component. So if you want to use electric propulsion to move your vehicle from low Earth orbit to uh, an interplanetary orbit, then you probably want to not have your astronauts in that vehicle while it's lifting in its orbit and accelerating. You want to put the astronauts in the vehicle after it's outside, uh, after it's away from the trapped radiation of the magnetosphere, only because that trapped radiation is intense if you're there from weeks to months. But I'm going to assume that, you've, that you're not going to have a situation like that, and so I will not be giving you numbers on the trapped radiation. Another thing, as by way of background, that you need to know is um, the solar cycle. And that is there's an 11-year solar cycle. Actually, it's 22 years, if you want to be precise, because there's a pole flip, and it's just like cosine um, function. Uh, but basically, an 11-year cycle, where the sun goes from a period of very low activity to a period of very high activity back to a period of low activity. Now, from the point of view of things like solar storms, the low activity where the risk of a solar storm near solar minimum is only a couple of years around, typically is only a couple of years around solar minimum. And then you don't really have a super high risk at solar maximum and only a modest risk other times. It's better to use the approach that Joan Feynman at Caltech um, developed many years ago, where you break it into two periods. You're either near solar minimum or you're, near so or you're in a period of solar activity. So near solar minimum is on the order of one to one and a half years plus or minus solar minimum, and the rest of the solar cycle is, is solar active cycle. Uh, so that solar cycle is driven by the dynamo of the sun. Um, component of the uh, radiation environment that I'm going to talk about is the galactic cosmic ray radiation. So these are the really high energy particles. They're, they have uh, GeV per nucleon level energies, not just GeV energy levels, but GeV per nucleon energy levels. Um, they are well named galactic cosmic ray because they're accelerated outside um, our uh, own some some of it's coming even from outside our own galaxy, but certainly they're coming from outside the solar system. Um, the GCR uh, are the nuclei of atoms. About 90% are protons, 9% helium, and 1% is everything else. And unfortunately, that 1% everything else turns out to be the biggest problem for galactic cosmic rays because of that energy per nucleon effect um, and how incredibly damaging they are as they rip through uh, as they rip through uh, your skin, your your body. 
Now, granted, the GCR are a fairly low intensity, so they're the cosmic drizzle, but they're extremely energetic and therefore very penetrating, very destructive. Um, GCR is going to be its maximum at solar minimum, and the lower energies of the GCR, that is GEV and less, GEV per nucleon and less, are most affected by the solar cycle. And what we have on the right side are um, examples at the top of low LET, low ionizing radiation uh, in the very top, pretty much going around, you know, having uh, impacts throughout the cell. Protons, which will leave a much more recognizable track through the cell, and the very high energy, um, highs E, highs E, and energy particles that leave just paths of destruction along their uh, track through the cell. I'm not going to try to you know, do anything quantitative with this chart other than to show you that um, the uh, GCR background is fairly well known. It varies from solar minimum to solar maximum. Here's two examples of a 77 solar minimum and a 90 solar maximum uh, for different groupings of the particles, and you can see, you know, how it varies with um, energy and with solar cycle. Now, one of the things that is interesting is that we are coming out of the lowest solar minimum observed in the space age, which meant a very, very low solar minimum meant we had a higher GCR background than we have ever experienced. We're also heading into what will probably be a fairly small solar maximum, which means that the solar, that the GCR will be um, higher at solar maximum than we're used to seeing. But since your mission could be two solar cycles away, we, you know, it's kind of hard to forecast what that means two solar cycles away. We could, the next, the, the next solar cycle up could revert to the kind of cycles we're used to, or it continued, could continue to be a very low solar cycle. And you kind of have to say, we just don't know which one it's going to be. That's the background on the GCR. The next um, thing up are the solar particle events. Um, those, are the, those are the storms. These are the thunderstorms in the radiation world. Um, they uh, are the solar energetic particles are accelerated near the sun, move out through the solar out through the heliosphere. One of the mistakes that people try to make early on when they want a shield from a solar storm is to assume that all they need to do is rotate their ship so the thick side is toward the sun. But in reality, a solar particle event soon after it starts is isotropic from the point of view of the vehicle in deep space because of because the energetic particles First of all, they're moving in spirals around the uh, interplanetary magnetic field lines, and second, there's a lot of scattering where they are actually moving back and forth. So they, they begin to diffuse uh, back and forth. So there's no preferred direction. You can't you can't build a strategy that says I'm going to put all my you know mass on this side and just keep that massive side pointed toward the sun, and that'll be good for me. Now you can move up next to an asteroid and spend a lot of time up next to the asteroid because that's a physical block of a lot of mass. So the more time you are close to the asteroid, then the solid angle that you're subtending by the asteroid, that gives you some protection. Um, 
sometimes solar particle events are called solar, solar proton events just because protons are dominant component up to 10, but there is up to 10% helium, 1% um, other elements. In the case of a solar particle event, the other elements, the high Z elements, they don't have the penetration that the protons have because their energies are on the order of tens of MeV, not their energies per nucleon. So they're fairly easy to shield except for the most energetic of them. So it really is the protons that you're mostly worried about in the case of a solar particle event. Um, but during their time when they're uh, underway, they, they are the thing to worry about. Uh, their flux is orders of magnitude above the GCR. Uh, we don't know in advance when they're going to happen, um, and so you have to be aware that they could happen literally at any time. Their biggest impact is going to be on the astronauts when they're on EVA, uh, because if they're under modest shielding, you can generally block the effects of a solar particle event, and I'll get into that in a little more detail. And you also have to be aware that um, your astronauts may not be in the heliosphere where most of the space weather warning assets are of use. Most of the space weather warning assets are designed to, to, to tell us that a solar storm is happening that will affect Earth. But if your astronaut, if your asteroid is on the other side of the sun from the Earth, then you'll have to recognize that there's an additional architecture needed to monitor risk of a storm where your astronauts actually are. And because you can shield the astronauts from a solar particle event with the shielding that you should have with your habitat, then it's very important that you have some way to alert the astronauts that it's time to get back to that shelter. Um, a little bit of an exposure to a solar particle event are characterized by the peak flux, that's the um, intensity per unit time of the event. Total fluence, how much total, um, how many total particles uh, went through a centimeter squared for the uh, duration of the event, total fluence. So flux is an instantaneous measure and fluence is an event integrated measure. Spectral hardness uh, refers to the relative ratio, relative percent of really high energy particles to, re, to lower energy particles. So you'll have a soft event represented here by this 1998 April 20th event that drops off very fast in energy. Or you'll have a very hard event like this 1989 September, the uh, September 1989 event that does not drop off very fast. So you have a significant number. This is still a log-log scale, so you don't get you know horrified by these numbers. but um, but you still have a significant fraction of fairly high energy particles. And you don't know ahead of time what the event is going to be. You have to, you have to measure the event as it happens to know if you're dealing with a hard or a soft event. So it also worries about time to peak and time to decay. Typically, these events will get to their peak in anywhere from 20 minutes to tens of hours. Um, time to decay could be anywhere from a few hours to several days. Um, GCR you can generally forecast a few years out. You can watch the curves for things like sunspot number and solar flux and 
um, match them up against what you think the next solar cycle is going to look like, and you can make a pretty reasonable guess as to once you're in a solar cycle, you can make a pretty reasonable guess as to what the GCR is going to look like over the next several years even, or at least over the next year. That's not true, as I mentioned earlier, if you're um, trying to look out another year ahead, okay? I mean, another whole solar cycle ahead, but at least in the solar cycle that you're in the middle of, you can get a pretty good understanding of the GCR. And by the way, the GCR uh, in the neighborhood of Earth doesn't change very much. In fact, the GCR in the neighborhood between Earth and Mars doesn't, doesn't change very much. If you know the GCR in your Earth, then you're pretty close to the, what the GCR is um, at, at Mars. So we're, we've got a pretty good understanding of the GCR levels. Solar storms, another story. You simply cannot force, forecast them today. Um, there are you know, one to three day forecasts for what the probability of a storm is, but it's largely persistence, and it's just, you know, it's, it's not quantitative. Uh, we can't say even down to the level of, you know, one to three hours. It's more like earthquake forecasting, but on a shorter time scale. You can say the sun really looks like it's about to have an event, but it could sit there looking like that for days, and nothing could happen. Even as the storm gets underway, there have been lots of techniques, um, neural, uh, neural nets, and oh, you, you name your favorite AI, and somebody has used that AI to look at historical storms to try to say, well, if we could see what the storm's doing in the first hour, maybe we know what it's going to do for the rest of the time if we only put enough observations in. So far, we haven't been able to crack that nut either. Um, so even as it begins, it's you know, you can get close, but you can't be precise in how a storm's going to happen. So, so, you're, um, so what this does is it leads to excess false positives, which means a storm's underway, you have to be conservative, you have to bring your astronauts back, and then it sort of fizzles, and, you know, you can go back again. So I'm going to spend a little bit more time, I think, close to the 45-minute level, but I think I'm doing good on time parts I have left. Radiation risk management, the total strategy has to consider the shielding, the actual physical shielding you're going to use in your, for your vehicle. Monitoring, monitoring the external environment around your, space, around your spacecraft so that you know what, what's going on in the neighborhood of your spacecraft. Astronaut exposure means you have to know what the astronaut is being exposed to at the location of the astronaut. So if they're under different types of shielding, if they're inside a storm shelter, if they're just inside the main vehicle, if they're inside uh, some sort of capsule that's in, around, or if they're just in a, in a, in a fly-around space suit, you need some way to know what each astronaut is getting exposed to. And that means, and so, so that's dosimetry. That's active on-site dosimetry. In addition, you want some way to have situation awareness, which is the warning side of it. I don't think in the course of your week that it would be appropriate for you to devote a lot of time to creating a solar particle event warning architecture, but you should at least acknowledge that you're depending on somebody to provide a, a, a situation awareness for solar weather. And part of that is communication elements. If you've detected that there's a high risk of a storm, how are you going to inform the astronaut that's at risk that he or she has to begin retreat to shelter? And that means maybe it's an Earth-based observation that determined that there's a risk of a solar storm. 
how is that message going to make it in a timely way to the astronaut at risk? Um, and so the bottom line here is that when you look at radiation risk management, it's not just the amount of mass that you put between the astronaut and the external environment. It's the whole, you know, it's the whole package. How do, how do you construct a, an effective packet for safing your astronauts? And you have to make sure that you all the elements of your architecture, the main crewed vehicle that they're going to be spending most of their time in, traveling from here to there, for you know, here to the astronaut, to the uh, asteroid. You might want to consider whether you need a solar storm or a hardened area inside your vehicle. Um, are you going to use, as part of your architecture, a um, hard shell that the astronauts get in to do um, uh, rendezvous around the asteroid so that they're outside the main vehicle? The main vehicle maybe is parked off at 100 kilometers from the asteroid, and then they shuttle back and forth in this small vehicle. What's this radiation shelter that you're, what, what's the radiation uh, safety components of this shuttle, if you have a component, if you have something like a shuttle. And finally, you may have the astronauts in free-fly mode. What's the exposure of the astronaut when they're in their own mobility suits? And what kind of timeline does it take to get from an astronaut chipping away at a corner of the um, asteroid somewhere back to maybe the safe shelter of the main vehicle? So you have to consider an operations concept that ensures a timely re retreat to that shelter. Now, of course, remember, the greatest risk to the astronaut is going to continue to be the chronic exposure to the GCR. So that's a time in orbit. That's a, that's a total mission timeline question. How long are they out there in deep space? That's going to continue to be the biggest health risk to the astronaut. So solar particle events, you need to find a way to ensure that they can be shielded, but you have to also ensure that there's enough warning to get those astronauts under that shield. Now, part of that means in your architecture um, that you have to build, that you should build in some sort of contingency time for the time that you spent at the asteroid in case they happen to be in a period where for three to five, it has been up to 10 days, but three to five is a reasonable guess that um, the uh, space environment is at an elevated level because of a solar storm, and you simply can't leave the safety of your ship. So be careful that you don't build a timeline that's so tight that if they get there at the wrong time, a solar storm comes along, they're not able to do anything, and they, by, because of orbital mechanics and propulsion and all your other constraints, you have to leave the asteroid, asteroid without ever having time to leave your ship and actually go and, uh, and kick the thing with your boot. Okay, so there's... Uh, some contingency time constraints that you need. Just to impress upon you how hard GCR is to shield in your spacecraft. Um, um, this gives the, this chart shows the drop-off in a measure, dose equivalent, with, as a function of thickness of shield. Um, notice that the best shield down here is this pure hydrogen shield. You're not going to get to pure hydrogen. Well, if somebody out there has a way to do pure hydrogen, I'd be delighted to hear it. <laughs> Maybe you can come up with something like that. Um, that's with the spacecraft the whole mission. Granted, you could put hydrogen as a fuel around your spacecraft at the beginning, um, but if you've used that hydrogen as a propellant, it's probably not going to be there on their way back. To so, so be careful what you do there. Um, Probably want to use low Z. Um, 
that the drop-off is not great. This is out to 30 grams per centimeter squared. So I asked my student this summer to, to carry that 30 grams per centimeter squared out to 1,000 grams per centimeter squared, and you see that the benefit does not kick in until you get way out in the thickness scale. So don't think that, oh, well, I'll just double from 30 to 60 and I'll be good. It's not going to drop off. So the GCR is, is, is tough. Solar particle events, however, on a log scale here, they're, they're being shielded quite well by 10 to 20 grams per centimeter squared of shielding. Um, I'm not going to speak to this slide. I will leave it for um, an exercise. Here's several um, solar particle events under um, different shielding thicknesses. Notice the shielding different steps are listed over here. Um, showing that many of them for small shielding, for relatively thin shielding, exceeded one year and 30 day limits as they exist today. Um, so, so solar particle events that we've historically seen can exceed these limits. Uh, one of the things we looked at this summer was how much shielding did you need to stay under the limits. And in the worst case scenario uh, was the a representation of the February 1956 event where you needed 30 grams per centimeter squared just to make sure you didn't exceed any of the limits. Um, but notice that, uh, that that assumed a very hard event uh, which we didn't have in-space measurements of. It could be that it was easier to shield if it wasn't as severe as we thought. But still, we have a lot of cases where we need 10 to 20 grams per centimeter squared to stay under the um, um, monthly permissible exposure limit. And I looked at we, we we looked together at the the timeline. How much time? How much time do you have to get the astronauts back? And in January 2005, we had the high, fastest onset of a solar of a solar storm that has been observed in uh, the space era. So the January 2005 event is, in a sense of timing, a stressing event. It had a very rapid onset, a very hard spectrum. But on the other hand, it, it was not one of the biggest events if you counted the total number of particles, if you didn't look at the total peak flux and, 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 and count how many total particles were there. But it was rapid onset, hard spectrum. Okay, so we use the January 2005 event as a um, measure of how much time we have. <clears throat> and um, since the 2005 event had a low total fluence, what we did was we wanted to see what kind of a multiplier did you need on the 2005 event? How much bigger in intensity, keeping everything else the same, just increasing it. So that the astronaut exceeded their limit if they simply stayed in a shelter or if they had one hour to get to shelter, two hours, et cetera, to get to shelter. And the multiplier is on the order of four to six, four to eight times. So increase the January 2005 event by a factor of four to eight, and you're only going to have a few hours to get back to shelter. A factor of four to eight is interesting because the January, the um, August 1972 event, which otherwise is the metric that we measure against, was 20 times the January 2005 event in total fluence. So it's not unreasonable to expect that there could be an event like the January 2005 event only 10 times greater in fluence. 
message there, you don't have to worry too much about the details, but the message there is that you have maybe only an hour or two to get back under shelter. Okay. Uh, but the good news there is it's not minutes, it's not seconds. It's not like some science fiction shows had portrayed where the storm happened and everybody had to run and duck under cover in, you know, while the, while the uh, klaxon was blaring in the background in five minutes. You do have reasonable time to get back to shelter. You just have to make sure you build in that reasonable time to shelter. So the question, how bad can a solar particle event be, uh, has three means could possibly mean three things. The total event was very bad. The total total exposure from start to finish was very high. It was a very hard event, which means it was a whole lot of high energy particles, or it had a very rapid onset, so that you had an hour or two at best to get safely under shelter. Um, and we have examples of all three of those. So you, you need to consider all of those when you ask yourself how bad can an event be. I don't know if you're, okay. Now, risk, mission risk balancing, probably your um, mission design is gonna be determined more by the opportunity to get an ask, get to an asteroid. You know, the, the orbital mechanics are gonna tell you what year you're doing your mission. But if you have a choice in designing for solar minimum to solar maximum, here's some of the trade-offs you get. Solar minimum, you're not, gonna, you're not likely to see very many solar particle events, but your GCR is gonna be higher. And remember, the GCR is very difficult. It's shield again, so it could be as much as three times higher at solar than it would be at solar maximum. If you're fortunate enough to have an encounter at solar maximum, most of your mission, you're gonna be inside your spacecraft anyway, which will largely shelter you from the solar storms. But you have a higher probability that when you do get to the asteroid, you'll be there during a period when, this, when a solar storm interferes with your mission options. So you have to be sure you have a, a safety net. And believe it or not, that's it. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.